When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Palmerbet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight-up screamer! Download our app today and enjoy straight-up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same-game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. What a champion! Becomes a legend! McCarty Debra's won it! Perkins goes in first. What a legend! What a champion! Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating Lives. What a pleasure it is to have your company once again for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. And today we celebrate the life of a gentleman, a sporting life, who has done just about everything there is to do. He's a premiership star. He's owned some pretty fast racehorses over the years. He's been a familiar face and voice on radio and television. And now he might just have the most scrutinised job in football. His name is Michael Christian, and he joins me in the studio. Chris, welcome. Thanks, Peter, and it's uh, great to catch up. Uh, lovely CV you've got there, so we've got a lot to talk about. I don't know how we're going to fit it in <laughs> over the next hour or so. Yeah, look, there's there's been a few elements um, to, uh, to to what I've done over the time and trying to sort of always move in, in a direction that... Um, where I enjoy what I'm doing, and yeah, so it's it's been it's been great. You know what it's like when you're a footballer or when you're in the media. Everything is scrutinised. Everything that you do is scrutinised. But do you have the most scrutinised job in football <laughs> at the moment as the match review officer? Well, I, I think some people might say that it's it's certainly challenging. And I did have the when when I started the role, I was part of the match review panel for for four years before um, Steve Hocking came in and wanted one person to, to control it and he's obviously a critical part of it as well so I'd make decisions and, and he uh, ticks them off and approves them before they're released so but yeah there is a lot of scrutiny uh, one of the things I really wanted to do when I came into the role was to try and help explain decisions uh, acknowledging that not every person would agree but I think one of the downfalls of the match review panel was that our members or the members uh, were told not to not to say anything about decisions. And I, and I think that at times was frustrating for the football public. So as part of one of the conditions I agreed to do the role was to be able to, to do a, a media conference every Monday and, and, and do radio and media stuff um, to help try and explain decisions. But all the time knowing that um, people are passionate about their clubs, they're passionate about their players, and, and not everyone's going to agree. One question arising from what you just said, Steve Hocking ticks off on what you do. Have you ever had a situation where you've said something and he has not ticked off on it? He's been amazingly supportive. Um, so, look, we have some robust discussions at times, but he's been amazingly supportive in terms of um, the guidelines and, and my interpretation. You didn't answer the question. <laughs> Will you? Will you answer the question? Uh, can you answer the question? Well, Is there a situation where... You've said something, you've said black, and he said white. No, there has okay. not been that situation. Okay. Can you take us through, Chris O, from Friday night until Monday morning, just the procedure that goes on from your point of view? 
Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we've had eight Thursday night games as well. So, mm. so basically after a Thursday or Friday night game, um, the vision, uh, all the incidents are time-coded, the vision cut, and then the next morning uh, we will look at the, I'll look at the vision and make a determination. And that gets uh, vetoed, uh, ticked off by Steve Hocking, and then it's released. Uh, and then Saturday and Sunday games are done on a Monday. So um, I go in uh, to the AFL Monday morning and we have it's a pretty full day because if it's a Friday night game only, that's eight games we cover on a Monday. And then from, from there, uh, once all the decisions are made, the clubs are informed of the decisions and then a media conference is called and, and I do a media conference at uh, late Monday afternoon. What else are you doing in your life these days? Uh, I've got a farm, Peter. <laughs> so I spend uh, I spend the rest of the week on on my farm. It's uh, it's a place called Longwood, Longwood East. And um, how much land have you got? Two hundred and thirty acres. Oh, that takes a bit of looking after. It takes a lot of looking after. So no, one of my great passions is breeding racehorses. And I started oh, gee, many years ago now, probably thirteen or fourteen years ago, on a small property in Whittlesea and. I just really enjoyed it and, and loved the whole process, starting from an owner. And I, um, between my stockbroking time and and media time, I did a, a diploma in horse breeding at it uh, at Epping in the Northern Melbourne Institute of TAFE, which was amazing. And really, just continued to to um, get more and more involved in it. And as you say, owned a couple of really nice horses and were able to breed a couple of really nice horses. And I, I just, it's a great outlet and I enjoy getting up there and just standing in the paddock with weanlings and, and just admiring the, their, their growth. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful industry to be, to be involved in. You've got your hands on some good racing trophies over the years. How does that moment compare to holding the trophy that every footballer wants to hold on the MCG on the last Saturday in September, or in your case, October? Yeah, well, that's true too. Uh, oh, look, I don't, I don't think you quite get to it because I think, as a even as a breeder and, and as an owner, you put a lot of work into into the horses, but you, you don't put quite as much as you do in terms of investing in in a in a sport like football and in a team. And I think uh, it's very hard to see anything surpassing that that moment uh, because it was it was a moment there where. I mean, the club won the premiership in 1958 and then I think had been involved in 10 grand finals and hadn't won any of them. So there was there was so much expectation in 1990 to, to get to the line. But we had a wonderful coach who uh, put it all in perspective for us and were able to, when it really mattered, play some really good football. We had the drawn game against West Coast, which was nail-biting, but then... The week later, we came out and won comfortably by 10 goals and then beat Essendon in the second semi by 10 goals and then won the grand final by eight goals. So we mm. were able to put it all together when it really mattered. And I think you speak to every premiership coach or player and, and they'll say a similar thing that that's the time you need to, you, you need a bit of luck with your injuries and you need to just be able to be play, your, play your best football at the right time of the year. Let's elaborate more on that as the hour progresses. Uh, let's go back to the start of the journey and where that moment uh, eventually led to when you were on the MCG, and it all began over the other side of the country. Yeah, it did. I, I come from a country town called Bustleton, uh, which is about three hours south of uh, Perth, and I was fortunate enough. It just so happened that I was, I was at sixteen. I was playing in the in the local team, which was the strongest country league in the in the state, 
And it just so happened that my first game, um, some East, the East Perth coach was down because that was the East Perth zone. And they just happened to stumble across the first game. And I played really well. And so there was a bit of a push and um, mum wasn't too excited about me moving to Perth. At, at, uh, just, I'd just turned 17. And, um, but anyway, we, we got through that. And so went to Perth and played at East Perth. And it, uh, it was a great time um, being my you know, first time away from home. It was, um, we played in a couple of finals, but met some great people and grew up really, really quickly. And, and then what happened is that in Western Australia at that time, this was before the Eagles came into the competition, the Western Australian League stopped the drain of Western Australian players to Victoria by putting in some guidelines that you wouldn't be cleared unless you played for six years or 100 games or were 23. What Victorian clubs did is they, they identified talent but knew that they couldn't get them until a certain time. So at the end of 1985, Melbourne and North Melbourne... Uh, Greg Miller was working head of recruiting at North Melbourne and Cameron Swab at Melbourne. And they both came across at the end of 85, knowing that I couldn't go to Victoria until 1987, expressed an interest and they came over and met, which was most exciting for me because I'd always had my heart set on coming to Victoria. What happened in 1986, I hardly played a game. I had uh, two groin operations, uh, osteitis pubis before it had a name. Mm. Then at the end of 86, I, I was eligible to come to Victoria and that was coincidentally the same year as the Eagles. So I was offered a contract by the Eagles, but I'd sort of had my heart set on coming to Victoria. And so I thought, well, I wonder what's happened. I hadn't heard from North or Melbourne. So I rang both and they just said, oh, look, you know, with your injury, it's probably not not going to work. And they they ended up choosing other players. And, and I read in the news that Greg Phillips, who at the time was a centre-half back for Collingwood, had moved back to South Australia. And I looked at Collingwood's list and I thought, they haven't actually really got a centre-half back. And... So I rang the club and said, oh, I'd like to come and play for you. And I actually, I thought Wayne Richardson was the head of football, but I didn't realise that it was Gubby Allen. So I eventually got through to Gubby and he said, send a tape over and we'll have a look at it. Anyway, uh, I was fortunate that I played with Stan Magro at East Perth, who obviously played a lot of football for Collingwood. Yeah. I was on the, on the big kite. Well, before that, Lee Matthews and Gubby Allen and Wayne Richardson came over see me in Perth, which was a real surreal moment because I'd only ever watched these guys on on TV. And, uh, yeah, that was very, very exciting. But anyway, yeah, ended up uh, at the start of 87 at Collingwood. How many blokes do you reckon have rung football clubs over the years and said, <laughs> I'm not sure. oh, I'd like to play for your club? And they go, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> well, it wouldn't happen now, obviously. No. Uh, <laughs> Did you have a VFL team at that stage? Because everybody, regardless of where you were in Australia, had... Oh, Barry Chris and Kilda. Okay. Yeah. Never hoped to get there? Well, I almost did. Uh, at the end of 1990, I, um, I met with uh, Peter Hudson and Ken Sheldon. We'd agreed to, for me to go to St Kilda. We just needed to do a trade. Unfortunately, at the end of 1990, Chris? Yep. At the end On of the 90- back of a premiership? Yep, but we couldn't orchestrate a trade. Um, Collingwood wanted <laughs> Nicky Wimmer or um, Stuart Lowe or a player, I can't think, but there was about three or four players and, and then uh, Collingwood said no. So uh, that was it. Hang on, you've got me here. I'm fascinated <laughs> by all of this now. Well, no, no, this is the first time I've ever talked about it. <laughs> Righto. So I want to find out about this. Yeah. So you've won a flag. Mm. All of the celebrations that go along yeah. with it. And you're contemplating going to another club. Yeah. Did you want to go? Well, no. You know what? I, no, I didn't want to go. But I, 
I, I tried to read the tea leaves because Collingwood at the end of 1990 recruited Gary Pert. And so we had, there was Pert and there was Craig Kelly who played that key back role as well, um, which so Craig and I played the, the key back roles in 1990. But I thought with, um, you know, Gary Pert coming to the club that I wondered where I might fit in. Um, and Craig and I both played Ford at different stages and I played Ford a little bit during 1990, in fact. But, um, and there was a bit about, you asked me who did I barrack for. I, I barracked, I was a passionate St Kilda supporter as a kid. To really prolong my career, I thought it was something that I, that I needed to consider. Can you take us into the conversation when you went to Gubby and maybe to Lee? Well, they weren't too, they weren't too keen on it. Um, and as I said, they, they put, yeah, okay, we'll trade, but we want, they named four, I can't even remember who the four players were, but mm. they were St Kilda's elite. And I wasn't elite in that in that sense. So St Kilda said, "Well, we can't do that." And fair enough. And so it was just one of those impasses that that just never just never happened. You learn something every day on this program. <laughs> Michael Christian wanting to go to St Kilda after winning a premiership. We're going to talk about that premiership in more detail. We're going to talk about all sorts of things that you've done. Fine television caller, radio personality, setting the alarm at three thirty in the Ooh, morning yeah. and getting Ooh, up. Yeah. That must have been delightful for about fifteen <laughs> years. We'll find out more from Michael Christian when we come back on the other side of the break. On this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Michael Christian on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Chris, you spoke about the arrival at Collingwood when you got there. Did you feel as though you were joining a team that had a hope of winning a premiership in the not-too-distant future? Well, you always hoped, I suppose, that it, that it would grow. But I think Gary Allen did did an amazing job in terms of he was head of trying to put the list together, I suppose. And um, Craig Starcevich, I played with him in Western Australia. He came at the same time and he was uh, he played a great game in the grand final and was a real strong contributor. And then we've got the two South Australians, Tony Francis and Scotty Russell, who were integral parts of the team. And, and then you had the old firm of Mullane and Banks and Shaw and guys that you knew well. And mm. um, they were just, they were so um, welcoming and, and it, they were so, in a sense, inspiring. And, and Mullane in particular was just someone, I'd never met anyone like Darren Mullane before because he was so... He was so happy all the time. He was so out there and he would play really hard as in off the field. But when it got to training and when it got to playing, he worked harder than anyone. And I, and it was sort of, yeah, he, he was a really, I'd never sort of come across anyone like that before who had, could did it, do it at both ends, but do it well at both ends. The, the other part to Collingwood in my first year in 1987 was there was six or seven under 19 players they won the boys have won the premiership in 1986 and they were all really fast tracked in 1987 and I, I talk of well there was McGuan, there yep. was Monkhorst. Monkhorst um you know other guys Gavin uh, Brown I Gavin think. Brown exactly uh Neil Brinley who played a bit through that didn't play in the grand final team but there was this this group this really young talented group that had come under the tutelage of Keith Burns mm. in the under 19s and had been fast tracked into the senior team the next year 
And look, I remember our first game was at Victoria Park against the rampant Sydney in, in the mid-80s. Sydney under Tom Hafey were, were ruthless and they beat us by 15 goals. And I thought, oh, gee, this is going to be a long, long road. But you could see these young guys in combined with some interstate guys that had been recruited added to the old firm was really going to, and you hope would develop into a nice mix. And eventually it did. So you come to 1990 and you've got the weight of history sitting on your shoulders and it sits more heavily probably on the shoulders of Collingwood than most other teams. Did you have the sense throughout that year that you were finally going to be able to bury them? What happened in 1988 is we finished second on the table. So we recovered after finishing low down in 1987 to finish second in 88 with all those things came together. Then we got beaten in straight sets out. And then in 1989, we made the finals and got beaten in the elimination final by Melbourne. In those days, it was a was a top five. Our goal in 1990 was to win a final. Not Forget about the 32 years of, of history and the losing grand finals and even the drawn one in 1977. But not to focus on that. That was the more external. But our internal focus was about winning a final. We almost didn't win... The final against West Coast because yeah. that, that was a drawn game. As it turns out, Crusoe, that famous kick of Peter Sumich at Waverley, do you think it helped Collingwood to win the Premiership because in some ways it hindered Essendon and their preparation to the grand final? Or is that giving them an out? Oh, well, I'd like to think it's giving them an out. For those that aren't aware, the rules in those days are different to the way they are now because we came back the next week and played. Now, of course, today it would just be you play on and you find a winner. So we came back the next week and then Essendon, instead of having one week, they had two weeks off. So I suppose you might excuse them for the second semi semi-final, um, where we won by 10 goals. I think it's a bit of a cop-out to say that they were hindered in the grand final. So you touch them up in the second semi. A couple of weeks later, you're front up on the biggest day of them all. If you've beaten a team by 10 goals two weeks previously, you've got to be walking onto that ground thinking, this is ours. Yeah, we were confident. We were confident. It was a really warm day, uh, as you say, the first Saturday in October. We felt our group was probably had more energy and, and more run and felt that the longer the game went, particularly, as I say, it was a really warm day that we didn't expect to win by as much as we did, but we felt confident in our ability that if we could do the things that we'd been doing in the previous two games, that we could that we could win. Got a bit hotter at quarter time. It's really interesting because not many people saw what happened. Um, Dennis Banks, I think, is the, is the only one that saw, and that was probably our, the best person to see what happened. Gavin Brown was put down by Terry Danaher, and then um, it, was, uh, it was on for, for young and old. I was playing on... Paul Salmon, I must admit, I um, was was a daunting task because he was players that are six foot eight, six foot nine. Are, are probably there's more of them playing today than back in those days. But oh, he was such a such a good player, and it was nothing worse than playing fullback in a in a grand final. But anyway, that's a, that's another story. He looked over, and and I started sort of jogging in that because we it was quarter time. The siren gone weird, sort of half off the ground, and it was quite funny actually because. I started sort of going there and he grabbed me and said, no, nah, no, nah, you're not going, you're not going anywhere. And sort of we there and then we ended up jogging over. But I was happy to leave it to, to Banks and Kelly and Mullane to, uh, to sort it out. But I do remember vividly what Lee Matthews said at quarter time. And he was ropeable because Gavin Brown was one of his favourites. Um, he said, right, let's focus, on, let's focus on the ball. Let's not get involved in, in any of this by play. We've just... Focus on the ball, head over the ball, body behind the ball, 
focus on the ball. And it was a really, that was his only message. It's really strong message. And, and that's what we did in the second quarter. And Essendon gave away, I think, two or three 50-metre penalties mm. just for little silly things didn't need to do. And that gave us some real momentum. And When did you know? A lot of people say it was when Monkey kicked the goal in the last quarter, but it was probably in the book before then. But when did you have time to stop and smell the roses? Oh, only in the last couple of minutes, to be honest. Like, yeah. I mean, we were eight goals up and, yeah, two or three minutes. You sort of – because of the history and you sort of always – Oh, not so much waiting, but thinking, oh, well, can something happen here? Can you know? Can it can it all go pear shaped? So really, it was only the last few minutes that we sort of looked around and started enjoying, and the Collingwood chant, the the slow Collingwood chant, started going up, and it was um, yeah, it was amazing. And then began a celebration, which yes. was uh, <laughs> reasonably enthusiastic. It was. It was really it, because we were delayed a week, though. We basically had the Saturday night. Um, and we went back to Victoria Park, and that was that just completely blew me away. And then the Sunday, and then the Monday, but we left for London at seven o'clock on Wednesday morning. We had the Copeland Trophy on Monday night. We only had three or four days, and then we were on a kite to to London to play Essendon, as it turns out, the very next Saturday. Because originally it was planned there'd be a two week break between the grand final and the, the game at the Oval. We got over there on Wednesday and we were we were complete rabble. No one wanted to play. No one cared about playing. What we had achieved was what we'd set out to achieve and it didn't matter what happened after that. Incredibly, we trained at the Oval on, on the Thursday and we lasted probably 10 or 15 minutes. Now, Lee Matthews didn't make the trip and that made it easier for everyone to just not care too much. Blokes ran two laps and then uh, just couldn't run anymore because they were too sick. And uh, by contrast, Essendon, who obviously seething from the loss, um, they were very professional. Kevin Sheedy made sure of that. They had curfews and didn't want to be there either, but they knew that let's let's try and redeem ourselves from what happened the week before. And it was completely out of control. In fact, so much so that at seven o'clock on Friday before the game on Saturday at the Oval, Ron Richards, and I was, I was just happened to be standing with uh, Peter Dacos at the time, who was captain because Tony Shaw never made the trip too. And Ron Richards said to Peter, this game is going to be televised back into Melbourne. I understand we've won last week, but we've got to make a good account of ourselves. And Dakes, the standing captain, said, oh, Ronnie, I'm just not sure we can do that. I mean, what, what do you want me to do? He said, I want to have a curfew on tonight, Friday night, the night before the game. And they said, oh, Ronnie, I'm, not, I'm just not sure we can do that. Dakes said, well, what are you thinking, you know? And Ronnie said, could you think you could have everyone back by 3 a.m.? <laughs> <laughs> and Dakes said, look, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> How'd he go? I don't think too well. No. I don't think too well. <laughs> so anyway, it was just – so anyway, we got out on the ground and incredibly, I don't know how it ever happened, but we won by seven goals. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. After all of that. After all of that, yeah. yeah. So it was, uh, it was amazing. Now, I want to tell another story about Grand Final Week, and you will probably remember this. Before you left, the celebrations were – very good on the Saturday night. They were very good on the Sunday night, and I know that firsthand. Yes, well, I think we might have been at Cafe Venice together in the old days on Turek yes, Road, Peter. Well, we were at Cafe Venice <laughs> on the Sunday night, and the song was sung, I reckon, about 30 times. <laughs> but after that, I rock up for work at Channel 10. 
Players went to the tunnel, I think. Correct. And Ed was in charge of things at Channel 10 at that stage. Yep. And so what he did was he got, I think, four of the players in to actually come in. Now, people will find this hard to believe, to come in and read a couple of intros on the sports segment on the news. Yep. Now, three of the players, I think Dakes was one of them. Yep. I'm just trying to think who Down the line. Uh, Pants was there, and yes. And Craig Kelly. And Craig Kelly. Yep. And there was also a fellow called Michael Christian. Correct. Mullane, Dacos, Kelly looked as though they'd been dragged through a shrub backwards when they got in there. <laughs> Michael Christian walks in, suit, tie, looked like the perfect businessman. Yeah. Can I explain? Well, at the start of the final series, Eddie said, and Eddie's obviously a passionate Collingwood person, boys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you to read the news. If we win the grand final, I'm going to get you to read the news on the Monday after the grand final. We were very dismissive. Oh, yeah, sure, Ed. No worries. No worries. So next week, don't forget, if we win the grand final, I'm going to get you. Yeah, no worries, Ed. Yep. No worries, mate. Yep. We'll sort it. And this went on right up until, you know, grand final. Don't forget, we're going to read the news. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, yeah, of course we will, sort of thing. It wasn't until Monday afternoon at about three o'clock, he came into the tunnel and he said, okay, boys, don't forget. Five o'clock, I've got the limo waiting. We're going down to the Yarra. We've got the chopper out to Nutter Wadding to read the news. I'm serious. This is how I've been. I've told you for four weeks. And we sort of looked at each other and thought, oh, my God. 7.30 on Monday morning after the grand final, I was at work in my suit. Straight from Cafe Venus. Basically, yes. And so I wasn't much good to anyone in there. But then the boss who um, he, he sort of at around lunchtime, he said, I thought you might have gone by now. And I've sort of, my eyes lit up because I, I wasn't even intending, I was going to go after work to the tunnel. He said, where are the, all the boys celebrating? And I said, oh, they're all just, because um, our office was in Collins Street, just up at the tunnel. And he said, oh, look, you should go. You should go. And I said, oh, you, are you okay with that? And he said, yeah, just go. So at about two o'clock, I left work to go to the tunnel. And so that, that's why I, was, I didn't yeah. go home to change. So I still had my suit on from, from work. Eddie dragged us out into the limo, went down to the Yarra. The chopper was waiting for us. We got in the Channel 10 top. And I think at that time, the four of us looked at each other and thought, oh, my God, this is actually happening. <laughs> the boys, obviously, because I'd been at work for six or seven hours, they'd, they'd continued from Sunday. So I had a chance to sober up a little bit. And we got there. And I think that's when the moment really hit and we – um, Eddie said, well, come into the studio, and David Johnson was reading the news. Yeah. I looked down at Dakes and Ned and Pants, and even though they had very happy and had a great day, they were all like fear because, oh, my God, we're actually here. So, yeah, so that's how it all sort of came about. And then the ironic thing was that uh, after we'd finished, we said to Eddie, okay, mate, where do we get the chopper back to back into the tunnel? Oh, no, sorry, boys, it was just one way. <laughs> it took us an hour and a half to get in from Nutter Wadding back back to where we were on Monday. So uh, yeah, but that was uh, that was an amazing experience. The other great Eddie story out of that grand final is on grand final day I was in the studio and so I was doing sport on the news. Mel Walden was reading the news that night, and Ed was doing a live cross. And apparently the story goes that at about two minutes to six, you know, the celebrations are going on in the rooms, and someone said, "Let's have a drink out of the cup." And they've looked for the cup, and they couldn't find it. 
and the reason was that Ed had pinched him. And he'd gone out into Yarra Park amongst all these feral Collingwood supporters with, with the, the Premiership Cup to yeah. do the live cross at 6 o'clock on the news. And he hadn't told anyone. Oh, well, that was classic, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, that was, they were great days. We could great do days. a whole show on yeah, 1990, could, I reckon. We uh, but we might talk about the aftermath of 1990 when yep. we come back on the other side of the break. We're learning a lot about Michael Christian today on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Hopefully a bit more to learn when we come back on the other side of the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. It is a joy to have Michael Christian as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Chris, if only we could broadcast what we've been talking about in the commercial break. <laughs> uh, it would be very entertaining. Uh, but uh, that celebration, well, you did a lot of radio with your great friend Mick McGuan, yes, the great Collingwood player. Yeah. I once suggested to Mick that there was a premiership hangover that existed at Collingwood after 1990, and that is accepted wisdom by the general football public. And Mick was quite taken aback by that and mm. told me in the strongest possible terms that there was no premiership hangover. Was there? Oh, look, I think in the fullness of time, you look back and you, you may come to that conclusion. I mean, the reality is we struggled to make the finals. and I don't think we did make the finals no. the next year, which shouldn't have happened um, with the list we had. I mean, the easy thing to say is it was premiership hangover, but there are a lot of factors um, outside that in terms of injuries and, and things that, that occurred. But I'll, I would have the same reaction as Mick, but the evidence uh, would suggest probably otherwise, and you could understand why people would think that. One of the things that did happen in the aftermath involved one of the guys that we've been talking about, Darren Mullane. It must have um, put things in perspective pretty quickly. Oh, yeah, look, um, Dennis Banks called me at 6.30 the next morning. Uh, on a Monday morning, I was I was uh, just on my way into work and I just thought he was, I just thought he was joking. I said, mate, no, come on, don't, don't, you know. And he said, no, mate, I'm telling you. And um, it was, it was, it was really weird because as I touched on earlier, I'd never really met anyone like Darren Mullane because He's the only person I reckon I've ever come across in my life where I thought he was invincible. Nothing could stop him. Nothing. Does it, and I mentioned earlier, you know, he'd play hard, really hard off the field, but play even harder on the field. And I was just in disbelief. I was just in shock and disbelief. And, yeah, it was a really sad time. It was a really sad time. And uh, I, I shared a house with Craig Kelly and, Darren would stay with us because Darren lived down at Noble Park and Darren would stay with us every Saturday night to make sure we got to training at sort of 8am on Sunday morning. So the three of us would would hang out and go out and there's always little things that, you, that remind you of him. It's always a thought and, you know, he was only what, 26 years mm. of age and, uh, yeah, it was just very, very sad. For, for those that are not aware, he had... He broke his hand um, about six weeks out from the, his thumb, at, six weeks out from the season finishing. And instead of just saying, well, I'll take a few weeks, he said, no, I want to play. So each week they would plaster his hand and he would just run around the oval and just, um, you know, just do basically nothing for six weeks. On game day, they'd get the saw out and saw the plaster off, jab his 
jab his hand, his thumb up, and then tape it really, really tightly, and then he would play the game. And then after the game, this was the most excruciating part because the the senators had worn off at the end of the game, and they had to take the tape off, which was which was really, really tight. So they took the tape off, and that, I mean, I'd watched, you know, a couple of times the pain he went through with that. Then they replastered the hand for the week, and then next Saturday they'd take it off again and then tape it up, jab it and tape it off, and that went on for six weeks. Mm. And you could see the way he was handling I mean, the football yeah. in that final series, that it was uh, one hand one was hand, on the footy yeah, and, and the it was other, his wrist. Yeah, yeah. Was controlling he, yeah. The and you just thought, oh, my God. I mean, I know there's, there's tough players and people have been through a lot, but I'm not sure anyone would, A, make the decision to do that and certainly make the decision to continue to do it given how painful it was. I mean, that was just unbelievable. A very sad chapter in the history of the football club and, and football in general. What about the rest of your time at the Pies, Chris? It was obviously going to be impossible to match what happened in 1990. Even if you won flags down the track, it was going to be yeah. impossible to match um, that. Look, we had a really good year in 1992. We finished equal top, but finished third on percentage. And in those days, they'd graduated from a top five to a top six. So we played as the third place team. We played the sixth place team, which was St Kilda. And St Kilda had Lockett and Lowe. um, And in the end, it was just, um, I can't remember the margin. They won by a goal, a couple of goals maybe. Um, But that was, we had a really good year in 1992, but... That meant that we were out uh, after finishing third, um, which which was a wet, boggy day at uh, Waverley Park, and we just didn't have a we just didn't have a great day and and got beaten, and that was that was probably one of the most disappointing games that I think I was involved in. And there was a high expectation; we believed we we thought we could we could go all the way in 1992, and then 1994 we we went we travelled to Perth and played West Coast in an elimination final. West Coast were dominant that year. They went on obviously and win the flag, and um, that was the the famous you know incident right at the end of the game. We were, we lost by a couple of points, but um, we played out of our skin. And in those in that era, no one could beat West Coast in Perth, and we went so close. But unfortunately, that was that was the end of it, and. Uh, I felt with that team, we, we could have uh, given a real shake as well, but that wasn't to be. What about when you got to the end, Chris? Did you feel as though you had something left in the tank or were you done? No, I was pretty done. And, and, and in that era, Peter, I, I, I got, I was, as I mentioned earlier, I was um, in stockbroking. I started work at seven and it was always a real battle because all my colleagues worked till 6 p.m. And at quarter past four, ten past four, I, had a, I, I worked on a dealing desk. So I literally sat a metre from my boss. And I had to say to him, oh, I'm off now. I mean, he knew I played football and that was part of the deal. But at quarter past four, where everyone else has got an hour and three quarters to work, I'm saying, um, I'm off now. And often he would say, yeah, oh, no, no worries, mate, I'll see you tomorrow. And the occasional time he'd look at his watch and go, oh, oh yeah, okay, fine. You know, and it, mm. so what I tried to do was maximise my time there, leave as late as possible, but so I wouldn't be late for training. And it became... So I, I parked in the car park on the eighth level, the early bird, and had to whiz down the car park, get onto Lonsdale Street, fight the traffic, get to Victoria Park and race out of the car, strap my ankles, get out on the track. Most times guys are already out there. Warm-up was quick. So in the latter years, had a lot of injuries with my soft tissue, with my calves in particular because I didn't warm up properly because I was late. And 
it all just got a lot. And I'd sacrificed so much for my work, which I really enjoyed. And it sort of got to a point, as I say, with the calf injuries. I missed a lot of football in 1995 because I couldn't get my, my calf right. And I thought at the end of it, you know what? It's probably time. I was 32. Um, it was probably time to um, put back into my work with, that had been so good to me over the time. Um, and, yeah, and, and I think back and, I th- and you know, you only, you only sort of retire once. Uh, well, some people retire more than once. But I, I look back and think, oh, now I look back and think that I wish I had have tried another year. But at the time, I was, I was cooked and I wanted to put something into my job, which was important to me. So taken as individual entities, you, you loved your work. Yep. You loved your football, but when you combined the two, it just became untenable. Well, yeah, and ironically, the next year, 1996, was when our team started training during the day. Mm. And then all of a sudden there was this – and there, there was a few years there where you were paid well for football, but it wasn't like you're paid now. It wasn't like you had to sort of – it was always felt like you needed something else to supplement your, your, work, uh, your football money. And so – and clubs encourage you to work as a distraction as well. Um, but ironically, the next year, I probably couldn't have done it anyway. I would have had to sacrifice my job. And, yeah, so all these things weighed up in the decision at the time. We mentioned at the start of the program all the facets to you. There's one that we haven't really touched on, and that's your work in the media, your fine work in the media. We'll do that when we come back on the other side of the break with our final segment with Michael Christian on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Our final segment in a very enjoyable chat with Michael Christian on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Chris O, it's ironic that after turning up in the suit and the tie at Channel 10, that uh, one part of your life would be working for Channel 10 and calling the football so brilliantly as you did for a long time. Well, thank you, Peter. That's very kind. Uh, that was an amazing time. And really, I think Dave Barham, who was executive um, producer at uh, Channel 10 football at that stage. And, and a genius. And a genius. And it gave me an opportunity. And look, I'd called radio um, three or four years before that, uh, maybe even longer. But um, yeah, so that was that was the start, and was able to get the opportunity on ten, and yeah, worked with some great people. I mean, you're great mates with Steve Coramain. Mm. He's a, he's an absolute star and professional. Learn a lot from him, and just in terms of his poise and his um, the, the way he delivered, never got flustered. You know, the consummate professional, and and some great people, and I got to work with my um, great mate Peter Dacos as well there, and um, you know, ran the Tim Lane, who I'd worked with at the ABC, and yeah, so it was great, and, and Stephen Silvani, and um, Robert Walls, and Malcolm Blight, and I used to drive Malcolm, when we did games in Geelong, I used to drive Malcolm Blight down, and oh, I'd just sit there and just just probe the story, and story, and, and he's such a fascinating person, and, and the, the one that surprised me the most was probably Robert Walls, because he has got the best sense of humour and because he always came across as a bit dry, but he is a ripping guy and the best sense of humour. And the good part about that group was that no one had an ego. Like no one, 
no one felt like they were better than the next person. And it was just a great team that we had at Channel 10. And yeah, it was such a pity that it ended the way it did. I had 10 years there, uh, which is a long time and thoroughly enjoyed every minute. And it, uh, it was great to meet and work with some great people. And the famous story goes with Channel 10, of course, that when they got the rights, it was co-Channel 9 and Channel 10, but the rights for the finals went yeah. to Channel 10. <laughs> yes. And when Kerry Packer was allegedly told about that, he said, to paraphrase, and they might need to bleep me, which <laughs> an idiot did this deal? <laughs> And well, that, I mean, who would do that deal? <laughs> Someone in Sydney at Channel Nine did the deal to say, "Well, we'll have every Friday night." That's all they wanted Friday nights, but they forgot to focus on the final. So we had Channel Ten had every final yeah. for five years. Mm. Uh, uh, it's inexplicable. I, I, don't, I, I don't know how you arrive at that. No. But anyway, we were the beneficiaries, and and it was fantastic. The other thing that you've done so brilliantly in your media career is set the alarm for 3.30 in the morning, as I said. Yeah. How long did you do breakfast radio for? Uh, yeah, 15 years. Um, at 927? At, at Sport 927, yeah, yeah, or RSN as it's now known. And yeah. uh, Look, I, I, I said off air to you, Peter, I'm not sure how, how I got up that early uh, for that long. But at the time, you know, you program your life around it and you get to bed a bit earlier. And, um, and, and again, I worked with some great people there and... Uh, Anthony Mithen, who's a, who's a great mate of mine, and, and Simon O'Donnell and uh, Mickey McGuan, and had the privilege to work with Ange Pippos for a couple of years, yes. who was fantastic, and, and the great Tony Jones, who I learned a lot from as well. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a really, really enjoyable time at, uh, at the station. Do you miss the media side of it, Chris? Because obviously with your job at the AFL, it's pretty impossible to combine two well that, that was that was the choice i was i was given and look it was a really hard decision just for that fact alone that i have to i had I, you know i have to give up the media role and um yeah that was that was the hardest thing in terms of accepting this this uh, role with the afl but um yeah look for, for various reasons that was the, the, the decision that was made and but i do miss it i, I really enjoy i think you know and you're a fantastic, great commentator, Peter, in your own right. And I think that one of the great things about calling a game of football is it's probably the next best thing to playing mm. in that you're involved in the play and you're riding bumps almost and it's um, and not getting hurt. But it's um, something that I really, really loved and really, really enjoyed. So many facets to your sporting life. It's been great to sit down and discuss them, to remember... That Sunday night after 1990 at Cafe Venice. <laughs> well, you were there front and centre. I think you were going off more than anyone. Uh, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Only by association. But uh, it's a night that anyone who's got a little bit of black and white in their veins will never, ever forget. And it was, uh, it was a thrill to be part of it. And it's been great to know you over those years. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Peter. It's been fun. Michael Christian joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Another great of the game coming up same time next week. Hope you can join us then. It's Tyre Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Tyre Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit tyrepower.com.au now.